Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Lit Up. This week we have the journalist and former editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, Elaine Welteroth, with us. She's here to talk about her new memoir, More Than Enough, claiming space for who you are no matter what they say. Now, Elaine is a judge on Project Runway in the US this year, and I was lucky enough to have her run to the studio in between shooting that show to talk about the book. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Elaine as much as I did. It's pretty incredible. This woman seems to have the perfect life, the one that we all look at on Instagram and wish we had. And in the book and as in the conversation, she really drops that veil. And that's why I think it's such an important book. She reveals the kind of heartaches, the bad men she stayed with for way too long, and also some of the professional hurdles that have gotten her where she is today. So I hope you enjoy it and can't wait to hear what you think. It's my great pleasure to have Elaine Welteroth on Lit Up. I have followed her from afar for so many years and finally she has written a book so I've had an excuse to have her on the show and that book is called More Than Enough and Firstly, I want to welcome you here, Elaine. Thank you for taking time off shooting Project Runway to come and... I mentioned that I read it on my iPad and I read this book, I think, in four hours and 20 minutes. And then I came here and I actually saw the physical copy and it's a big tome in the best type of way. But it just as as an example to everyone as to how compelling, gripping, beautiful and important this book is. So thank you for being here. My quavery voice is giving away how pleased I am to have you. Thank you for all of those beautiful things. That's like the the, the best of what you can hope for when you write a book like this is that it affects someone, just one person in, in, in that way. So thank you for sharing that with me. It means a lot. Well, because I want everyone to get a sense of how beautiful the book is, I would love you to read from the introduction And we'll just launch in from there. Cool, let's do it. So I open every chapter with a quote. um, And instead of calling this the introduction, I decided to title it the intention. And the chapter quote is, what comes from the heart touches the heart. Deborah Welteroth, my mom. Growing up, Oprah was my favorite imaginary auntie. She lived inside the TV and I looked forward to visiting her every day at 4 p.m. sharp. For one hour, every Monday through Friday, I got to watch a black woman command dominion over the world. As a little brown girl in a big white world, that's a powerful thing to witness, especially in a culture where you do not see yourself positively reflected in the media. Research tells us that on average, a girl's confidence peaks at just nine years old. Nine. That pains me, though sadly it's not surprising to me. My baby cousin Joy was just five when I noticed her standing in front of a mirror with a tan towel wrapped around her tiny head. She was looking at her reflection, examining her smooth mahogany brown skin with eyes that lit up like little half moons. As I watched, she got caught up in a reverie whipping that towel back and forth like it was Rapunzel's long golden locks blowing in the wind. What are you doing? I asked. She looked at me and with one final swing, just as the towel fell to the floor, she said, I wish my hair wasn't so ugly. I was only a kid then too, but her words gave me a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. It wasn't just sympathy but also a quiet recognition of my own internalized struggle to accept what was looking back at me in the mirror. The kind of beauty we saw celebrated around us at school, in magazines, and on television had a way of making us feel like the bodies we were born into were somehow inferior. 
Apart from Auntie Oprah, the media's portrayal of black women was grossly limited in scope and variety. Luckily, I had strong examples of women of color in my real life who watered the seeds that helped me believe I could dream beyond what I saw around me. Fast forward to when I was appointed by Anna Wintour to lead Teen Vogue. I thought I was just a girl getting a dream job, but then the headlines hit. Suddenly, I was a black girl making history. At 29, I had become the second black person and the youngest ever to helm a Condé Nast magazine. And I was now the one holding the pen in one of the most divisive political climates in recent history. Shonda Rhimes coined the term first only different. Being an FOD in your field comes with a unique responsibility and a powerful opportunity to rewrite rules, to redefine norms, to represent for the communities that haven't had a seat at the table before. But what good is a trailblazer who isn't willing to leave signposts along the way that make it a little less confusing, less lonely, less disorienting for the next woman or person of color to follow? With my promotions, I had an opportunity to help ensure the joys of the world never doubted their value. I was able to help undo some of the damaging narratives I grew up with by recasting pages to make them more reflective of my world and to create space for the most pressing issues of our time. While it all played out like a career fairy tale online, none of it was easy. Unlike the days when the integrity and authenticity of women's stories reigned supreme on The Oprah Winfrey Show, we now scroll headlines and highlight reels, collecting cues from each other's filtered lives for how to navigate our own. Yet what you see is rarely what it is. As a journalist and a truth seeker, I believe there are universal gems buried in the stories women never tell. While I still have much more life to live and so much more work to do in the world, I'm ready to offer some of my own signposts from my path thus far. Because no one can share my truth but me. I have often found myself situated in the in-between, stretched like a bridge between worlds, black and white, beauty and activism, the past and the future. But in this sliver of space, this intersection I now own, I have learned to create magic. Which brings me back to Oprah, who is a master of many things, but reminding us of the power of intention setting might be her greatest gift to us all. As I embark on telling this slice of my own story, a story that is still being written, it is important that I lay out my intentions clearly. This is my offering to the next generation, as much as it is a tribute to the women who have come before me and offered their shoulders to stand on. This book is not a career manual because I believe only you can write your own blueprint for success, though I do share some of my hard-earned lessons that I'm still learning to live by. This is not intended as self-help, though I do open up about how I have overcome fear again and again through faith. This also isn't the story of how Teen Vogue got woke, though I do reflect on how I woke up to the power of my own voice and how I learned to use it to advocate for what I believe in. Instead, consider this book a love letter to anyone who's felt othered, overlooked, overwhelmed, underestimated, undervalued, and still chooses to overcome. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you. So a question I wasn't going to ask you first is, have you met Oprah yet? I have. I thought you might have. Yeah, it was a game changer. I mean, it was amazing. It was um, actually shortly after I left Teen Vogue, Ava DuVernay, um, who graciously and miraculously wrote my foreword and is someone I consider a mentor of sorts, um, who actually helped give me the courage to make the leap of faith out of um, Condé Nast, the, the Condé Nast castle um, and, and encouraged me to take a bet on myself and to build my own table, so to speak. Um, she uh, called me and asked me if I would uh, host the interviews at her premiere for Wrinkle in Time. And of course I said yes, enthusiastically. And then I looked at the press list of people who would be coming through and I saw Oprah's name on it and I thought I was going to pass out. I was like, I'm meeting Oprah. That's like all I could think about. And, and as she walked up to me, she said my name and I, 
almost passed out. I, I like lost my cool. It was all televised. My interviews were televised. I was on like, I, I was doing like her red carpet interviews with all of her sort of uh, friends and VIPs on the carpet. And so when Oprah comes up, I would just like look at the camera and I go, oh my God, Oprah Winfrey just said my name. And then she walks up and I just proceed to bow. I just repeatedly bow in her presence. And then she starts bowing and I'm like, how do you know my name? How do you know who I am? This is insane. Um, and she, we, we had a, a great brief interview conversation, which really, really just felt like a conversation. Um, and she held my arms the way that she does on the Oprah Winfrey show. You know, you know, if you know, if you know Oprah, you know, like the Oprah grip of death, like she and holds you. And know you know that if she likes you, she might do it. But you know, if she repels against someone. Right. Then she keeps her hand folded around. Yeah. Like she'll keep her hands down. But from she, she like grabbed my arms and she was like, listen to me. She was like, the, your only obligation is to listen, listen for life's whispers. And like, that was just such a relevant, I mean, it went on, but it was, that was the nugget of it. And, um, I just sort of, sort of felt like touched by an angel, you know, she has that sort of really special commanding presence where you feel truly blessed to be in her midst. The only other person I've ever met, there's two other people I've met who have that kind of aura. And I would say is Michelle Obama and Ava DuVernay. So I, that was just such an extraordinary moment that Ava gave me and I'm forever grateful. I hope she reads my book. I have to, I have to get it. I have to somehow get it to her. I'm sure she will buy it to support it. I as hope well. so. But that idea, that beautiful phrase, listen to life's whispers. Yeah. Wow. And I'm follow gonna... them. Like that was her whole thing, which is interesting because it's a different way of wording one of my sort of deepest truths or my mon- mantra, so to speak, that I live by, which is when the music changes, so must your dance. And it's the same concept of like believing in a higher power and purpose and knowing that there's a certain amount of like there's a certain amount you can do through the strength of your own will. And then there is a, a really a time and place where you need to surrender and, and just be in flow with what is meant to be and, and, and let that guide you. Um, which is a hard thing for a lot of ambitious women to, sur- to surrender their control in that way. But I think it's such an em- empowering concept when you realize that there is a, there is a flow, there is a divine order to things and there's always an answer and you actually already have it. You just have to quiet the noise to be able to hear it and then just to follow it. Like that's your only, ob- that's your only obligation how do you, in those moments of transition, create that space? It's hard. So hard. And I don't think there's a formula. There's no rhyme reason. And I also don't think there's a, like, I don't think anyone gets to the point where they don't encounter uncertainty um, ever again. You know, like you always will come to a point where like, I'm not sure what to do here. Um, I think that it's important to have a practice that brings you back to your center. For me, it's devotional. I have a devotional that I've always, I mean, my mom raised us with um, this devotional called the daily word. And every morning she would call us from work cause she went to work really, really early. So she'd, call, she'd wake us, she, after my dad woke us up, she'd call us from the office and then we'd read the daily word together. And um, it's, you know, a little passage scripture and then a little passage about it. Um, that helps make the scripture more relatable to real life. And so I have one, actually I brought it with me. It's called Jesus Calling and it's just very brief and it just sort of sets the intention for the day. Um, And so I usually find, when I find myself like spiraling in my head or like find my mind racing, um, it's like hard to find peace or quiet from the chatter. I usually just crack that open and it has this supernatural ability to in the moment instantly every single time like calm, just settle everything that's like rising up, everything that's like, that feels like it's out of place. It just sort of settles everything and recenters me. And then like, I think deep breathing and that kind of thing really helps a lot. And just having a network of people that you can, like a small, a small network of people that you, that holds space for you where you can just, my fiance calls it, uh, he says, you, you verbally, you need to verbally process some people can do it internally. I really find that I need like a, a thought partner to be able to verbally process things with in a safe space, no judgment zone, 
work through it aloud and then come to a, a decision. And, you know, sometimes in, I try to operate in a place now, now that I'm sort of more in control of my time, my projects, my life in a way that I wasn't always before. It's a luxury <laughs> to work for yourself. Um, I try to stay in a place where I am making decisions from a place of hell yes or no. And I try to let enthusiasm guide me. I try to let like, I, I think that God speaks to me through my enthusiasm. So when I feel that like heart flutter or chills, or I get really excited about something, I'm like, this is a hell yes. This is pointing me in the direction of where I need to go. Like I'm on the right path. I know it because I can feel it. If I'm drained and like, like self-loathing and dreading or just unreasonably exhausted about something that shouldn't be that exhausting. I'm like this, I'm not on the right path. Like I'm not aligned. Something's not right. I kind of use my own enthusiasm as a compass of sorts when I'm making decisions or whenever I'm feeling unsure about what to do. I feel like that taps back into your childhood at moments where that enthusiasm took you on little journeys. And there was this entrepreneurial little Elaine. (laughs) And that was early. Can you talk about some of those moments? Because I'm thinking of one in the book that's so beautiful when you start a beauty salon and another when you, you know, are just collaging a lot and kind of already making these vision boards in a way when you're such a young girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think that we all can learn so much about ourselves and where we should be, what should we should be doing with our time or what would be the most fulfilling ways to spend our time um, by just like looking back and, and remembering how we played as a child. I think there are a lot of uh, little crumbs, little clues that can lead you to your purpose, your passions. And over time they kind of get beaten out of you. So sometimes you need like help remembering what those things were. But for me, I remember being a magazine junkie from the time I was a little kid. I would race to the mailbox to to get Essence out of the mailbox every month. Um, I loved Into the Spirit, which was a column from the iconic uh, editor-in-chief, Susan L. Taylor. And I would just absorb those pages. And then I would create collages and my photo albums. And I was so meticulous about every page and every detail and how I was stringing together the stories. And, and each of my friends had their own, like effect, it was effectively like a spread that was like their essence, like their favorite things, my favorite pictures of them that captured their spirit and their personality, you know? And so when people would come over, I'd be like, you want to see my photo albums? Like, they're like, no, I don't care. And I'm like, please look at my photo albums. And I look back and I'm like, clearly those were my first magazine prototypes. And clearly I should have been an ed- a magazine editor, but I didn't have the language for that. I didn't know that was even a, an option um, a- until many years later. And then I, in terms of the entrepreneurial spirit, I remember being around fourth grade and deciding to start a beauty salon in the backyard of my best friend's house. And we just decided we were going to have this business. And so we went around to the cul-de-sac and we asked all, we knocked on doors and we asked everyone to give us their spare cardboard so we could build our front desk and like build the, the wall dividers between each station. We like stole some nail polish and like all the beauties that products that we needed from her older sister's caboodles. And like, just, you know, we hung up, uh, um, sheets, as like airy dividers between some of our walls to create walls in the space of the salon. And we just loved it. And then we like made our own cigarettes that we rolled up. And then at lunchtime, at break time, we'd go around the backyard and we'd like fake smoke them. And it was just- That's such a fabulous detail because it's about the life of a beauty therapist. Right, we've made no money. It's not even just the action of manicures. It's like, you're already imagining- her break time. And I'm like, I actually think I, I was modeling or I was, you know, like reenacting what I had seen go down every Saturday in my aunt Janet's hair salon, which is where I spent so much time waiting for my mom to get her hair done. And I would just observe the way it all worked and the kinds of women who came in and out and the kind of woman I wanted to be. And, um, or I would, I would spend time visualizing based on these, you know, these influences, the kind of woman I would want to be. And I think I then 
was playing that role with my friend in, in real life. And it was also a fun way to meet friends and to like break the ice with these girls in the neighborhood that I wanted to be friends with, but didn't really know well. Um, and so we would just go around and once we, we asked for the cardboard and then we went back around once the salon was built and we invited them to come play with us. I think in some way we made a little bit of a name for ourselves in that little cul-de-sac and, and we became familiar faces to girls who we, I think otherwise felt a little bit invisible to. She was uh, Mexican American and, um, I mixed race black and white and, everyone else in the cul-de-sac, they were all white girls. And so this was, I don't know if race played a role. It definitely didn't consciously, but on some level looking back, it's its just interesting that we felt that this was sort of like a utility. This was a way for us to add value to this community, to fit into this community, to invite them into our space. Um, and you just, I, I do wonder if that played some role in the dynamic, but certainly it was the early indication that I, I had an entrepreneurial spirit for sure, if nothing else. In the book, you say that you didn't grow up with any rigid definitions of what it meant to be either black or white. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet as a kid, you were obviously absorbing the way people react to you and the way you react to other people in as little girls are. Mm -hmm. But was that a conscious decision on your parents' half because you had a white dad and a black Mm mum? And I'm imagining or wondering if they ever had conversations about how we're going to raise our kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before, you know, my brother and I were born, my parents had a conversation, a verbal contract of sorts that they were raising black children because in America, for all intents and purposes, while we, while we know the term biracial and we sort of acknowledge the term mixed race, there really isn't space carved out for, for a mixed race identity. Like no one, you're either black or you're white in America for all intents and purposes. And really the way that you present physically is going to dictate how you're perceived and therefore how you're treated in the world. And so, um, barring us coming out completely white, we were going to be perceived as black. And so they were very clear about that up front. And at the same time, I think, I think they made that decision as protective mechanism so that they were a unified front and so that we wouldn't be confused about our identity. And at the same time, they did not, they were trying to protect us from the world out there. But within the four walls of our home, we didn't perpetuate any of stereotypes that are typically um, associated with being white or black in America. Um, out in the world, you know, like my, and I, I grew up in a very open-minded, free-spirited, eclectic household that was filled with music, different kinds of music. My mother's a gospel singer. My dad's this like acoustic guitar playing, um, rock guy. He like wears, you know, cowboy hats and he's kind of a hippie. My brother's a punk rocker. He looks exactly like me, except he has, he growing up, he had like a six inch green mohawk. He wore like chipped black nail polish, loved Marilyn Manson and like Rancid and Green Day and Nirvana. And then he got into much more hardcore punk rock, was underground stuff and has always been in a punk rock band since he was 12. And then there's me and I'm sort of like this chameleon, like more type A personality. Um, And I think I have more of an inclination to like want to fit in uh, and, and just, I'm naturally inclined to adjust to the social norms of whatever environment I'm in, whereas my brother came out of the womb, very uninterested in that and blending in and in any way. And my parents nurtured that about both of us. Like they nurtured exactly, they nurtured our nature. They paid attention to our differences and they encouraged us to be who we are. And there was never any sort of discussion around like how to, how to be, how to talk, who to socialize with, who to date, who not to date. Like we felt very free to express ourselves um, authentically. And I, and I think I really didn't start to fully appreciate the impact that's had on me until much, you know, until years later as I was an adult. Um, and also when I got to, I got a chance to see how other people were parented and I could really appreciate how special this was. And, and also to be from a mixed race background, I think it's so rich in cultural learnings as a child, you're exposed to two very different cultures 
you are at the center of both. And at the same time, you also grow up feeling like there's never really one place that you fully fit in to. Like there's no, there, there isn't an one identity that you can fully claim or, or, you know, you, I, I grew up in a lot of situations where I was, you know, considered too white. And then as I got older, I was, I felt like I was too black in some places and some places, some situations, particularly in like white corporate America, I was definitely made to feel other in certain ways. So it's just interesting. It's an interesting, lesser explored identity. And it's, and it's, it's weird because it's the fastest growing demographic in America, you know, mixed race people, but we don't talk about that experience or that identity as much. And so part of my goal with this book is just to shine a, a light on and to normalize this experience. Um, I just don't think if you're not mixed race, I don't think you think about what it's like to be a mix of two worlds. And, and ultimately in my career, it became, it equipped me to be a bridge between worlds in a lot of different ways. Well, Annie, Sorry, that was like so long. No, it's fascinating. And inherently it makes for more complexity. Yeah, so when absolutely. you think of kids adapting, they're having to ask such bigger questions mm-hmm. of themselves and their surroundings, mm-hmm. I would say evolving at a much faster pace mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. others potentially. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think I was definitely self-conscious I think being biracial made me more self-aware. You know, I tell a story in the book called, it's in a chapter called White Paper Family. And I tell the story of being three years old in my preschool classroom. And by the way, this was my first memory in life, which was me standing around a circle with a bunch of chubby white faces. And we were all asked to make collages of what our family members look like by cutting out magazines. And we were handed this stack of magazines where I just flipped through and I couldn't find anyone who looked like my mom or me or my brother. There were lots of options for white dads to choose from. But in that moment, it was not until that moment that I ever knew I was different. You aren't born black. You become black. Somebody tells you you're black. The world makes you feel black. Like and that was the moment where I realized, oh, I'm not like anyone else here. And then immediately I felt shame. Immediately I felt something's wrong with me and I don't want to be different. I want to be like everyone else. So I was like in denial. And so I just cut out white people because that's what everyone else was doing. And I didn't want to stand out. And then I saw the teachers sort of hovering around me and, and realizing what was going on. And it got a little awkward and they were trying to direct me to the black girl that they found in another magazine who looked nothing like me. And then that made me feel even more like an outsider. So I just ignored them and I just kept cutting out white people and gluing them on a page as if that could like make me like everyone else. And then I came home with this assignment and my mother was not having any of it. And she sat me down along with my brother. She pulled out a stack of Ebony and Essence magazines and she's like, we're going to redo this assignment and you are going to peel off those white kids and you're going to find kids that look like you and your brother. And then it became fun. It became a fun, it was like a fun racial intervention, (laughs) racial identity crisis intervention situation. And, and, um, at the end it was really fun. And my mom taped it up on my wall next to my bed so that it was the last thing I saw before bed every night and the first thing I saw every morning. And I think it was her way of forcing me to confront my identity and to embrace it and to be proud of who I am, to not try to escape my my blackness or my otherness. And And she did a lot of things throughout my childhood to counteract all these messages that were coming at me from the world, mostly subtle, some overt, you know, not seeing myself in, you know, magazines or, you know, TV shows or commercials, like always, you know, you you only saw the white doll on commercials. You never saw the black doll. Or if you did, she was in the background. So it made me always want the white doll. And then my mom was like, no, you're getting the black doll. You know, like there was this constant like tension. And my mom was really trying to pull me in the direction of pride and confidence and self-esteem. And she made me take African dance class, whether I liked it or not. She made me wear my hair in braids until I was like in fifth grade. Um, she just did a lot of things to reinforce this pride and Afrocentricity. And I think later in life, I came to really start to appreciate that, but, but it wasn't forced on me. It was just an invitation. And it was sort of like, 
indoctrination. It was, it was sort of like a, you know, an, a necessary cultural education that she gave both me and my brother. And also a lot of it was in the salon, in the black salon, in the black church. She made sure that even though we were raised in a predominantly white neighborhood um, and we went to predominantly white schools, she made sure that we were exposed to things like the black church and the black hair salon and these classes that I mentioned so that we could see ourselves and we could have a community to belong to. But it's weird as a mixed race kid, you just still feel like you don't fit in anywhere. And I also think that's a great experience to have because growing up, then you, as you get older, you realize that you have this empathy chip that is just so, it's a muscle that is just so strong and you realize you can start to see and cater to when you recognize anyone's feeling othered and you, and you have this ability to bring people together. And you also, by the way, as a mixed race person, you have whether you realize whether you realize it or not, you do have a measure of white privilege that grants you entry into spaces that other black people might not. So it's this an, this is sort of like you in some ways you feel like a secret agent for change. You can get places and you can and you can you can, it's, it's about power and privilege and what you're going to do with it as a, as a mixed race person. And I took that responsibility kind of really seriously, which is why I entered the magazine world at Ebony. All of that's packed into this conversation of what it means to be mixed race in, in America or anywhere in the world. A quote I wanted to bring up that is obviously yours that was so interesting was, being born biracial was like being born with built-in ethnic camouflage that afforded me the ability to shapeshift with my surroundings. Mm -hmm. And you've just talked so eloquently about how you were able to navigate the world. But I also feel that that must have been tiring. High school also seemed like a place where that was particularly something you were negotiating all the time mm -hmm. and how did your first love <laughs> your first boyfriend um how did he play a role in helping you enter a more a predominantly black space it's so interesting so my first love is was also mixed race but he was considered more quote unquote culturally black than i was he was more he was socialized around more black kids growing up. And so, and, and I was, you know, the, the token black friend. So I had all of white friends for the most part growing up. So I, I had a hard time when I went to college, when it, sorry, when I went to high school, there's this phenomenon that I call the black table, which by the way, is like a thing at any school, ask, ask anyone of color and they will know exactly what you're talking about. We find a way to kind of segregate ourselves and, and, in some ways, it's really about creating a safe space where you can just be who you are without the threat of an of of someone making you feel othered or making you feel like you're you're not following the cultural rules. Um, you're too loud. You're doing. You're you know, pull your pants up. You know, you can't do that. You can't say that. Like, don't dance. Don't. It's like you're able to kind of be free and 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 your full expression of who you are amongst your people. And so. I call that phenomenon at, in high school settings the, the black table. And that's where all the black kids congregate at lunchtime. And I never felt welcomed into that bubble. And there were met certain messages coming at me that made it very clear that I, it was sort of like an icy pit for somebody like me. And I, because of the way I talked, because of who I hung out with, because of how I carried myself, because of the way I dressed, like... I just didn't fit in necessarily. And yet he did. So when we fell in love, it sort of became this, like by extension of dating him, I kind of got like this plus one invitation to be there, but I still never felt totally welcome. And um, I was always doing this dance and I never, I would never bring like my white friends into that space because it would be even more uncomfortable for me because then you know, they would illuminate that like I'm bringing in more outsiders and I already feel like an outsider. So there was this thing I had to negotiate socially where I just felt, I didn't feel black enough to be there. Even though first love was good in introducing you to, you know, other people, those types of things, I do think it's incredible how honest you are in the book about 
this moment of going to college because he was at this one college and not applying to Stanford. You were such a great student. On reflection, yep. I how difficult was it to to write those parts of the book? Because I'm sure you just kind of cringed for your younger self, but oh, had totally. to be kind to her. Oh my gosh, yeah. There's lots of cringeworthy moments in the book, but I felt like I had to tell the whole truth because I think when we when we tell our truths, I think it wakes up the truth in other women. And so, and, and yeah, that portion was, was tough because it made me relive some of those decisions that I'd made, which ended sort of painfully. But I essentially, yeah, I was a 4.0 high school student, um, lots of extracurriculars as an athlete and a first generation college student, you know, a young woman of color, I could have applied to scholarships. I had this big dream as a child of going to Stanford University and I just didn't even end up applying to Stanford or any other UC. Um, I thought I, you know, it would be too expensive for my family. And ultimately I was drawn to a state school that my boyfriend went to. And we were, you know, it's this, I, I, I did the single thing I tell every young girl to never do, which is I followed my boyfriend to college. And for me, it ended up, it ended sort of tragically because I got there and realized that this fool wasn't even going to class. So he wasn't, he wasn't even enrolled at that point. So, so I'm like, here I am in this, you know, cow town, Sacramento, uh, in the middle of California, it's just not, it was not my dream school. And I'm now I'm stuck here, uh, unless I want to transfer, which will delay my whole graduation time, you know, the timeline for my graduation, which I didn't want. So it taught me early how easy it is to get distracted by love and by outside influences that can pull you off of your path. And it made me vigilant about protecting, it just made me vigilant about the fact that I am in the driver's seat of my own life and don't ever hand the wheel over to someone else. You can invite someone into your car, you can ride with someone, but I think I was raised during this era where there was this message that was being reinforced to young girls, which was, you know, this concept of ride or die chick, like be the ride or die, hold your man down, ride with him, no, you know, until the wheels fall off, like just be loyal, deal with the bullshit. Like, and that, that those messages just, somehow subconsciously influenced my decision-making so much that it just, they over, they were like overriding my common sense almost. And I just wanted his validation. I wanted, I wanted him to think that I was a good ride or die chick or, you know, so to speak. And so I stayed way too long in a situation that actually wasn't good for my growth. Um, but I think you have to make those, you have to make those mistakes early. You have to make those mistakes in order to learn those lessons. I hope that in sharing some of these sort of cringy moments and, and bad decision-making with really in, with, with regards to relationships with men so that other young girls reading this who see themselves in these pages will cycle through those bad relationships a little bit faster the takeaway that I hope young girls will have when they read this book and women of any age is, is just to never stay stuck in places or with people who force you to shrink. Like your only obligation is to listen to life's whispers and to follow it. Like you have to stay, you have to be true to your calling. And if we're going to stay with this analogy of ride or die chick, I realized at some point I'm like, I never asked where we were going. And, you know, we're hitting some, some potholes. It's getting bumpy. We're off-roading now, you know, we're hitting some weird terrain and we're, you know, the car's breaking down. It's like at some point I finally woke up and realized I need to get out of this car and run in the other direction and get back in my own lane and drive my own car and take it where as far as I can go. And I I think it was ultimately a good experience for me because it taught me that 
I won't hand over the agency over my own life and decisions to another person ever again. And, and it forced me to just be really clear about where I wanted to go and to not let anyone or anything distract me. So I think ultimately it served me because I, I think I got where I was going faster because I had blinders on. Cause I was just like, I'm not letting a man get me off track ever again. <laughs> and of course I did. Of course I did. We all do. But in a different way, it's yeah. almost as if you had learned certain lessons from him. And then as young women, we're walloped with the next round of lessons from a different type of man, right? Mm-hmm. You're so like, oh, to- this man is going to teach me these lessons. I already learned those lessons. Right. And then you learn them over again. We think of our value as um, being associated with our friendships, our relationships, our jobs, our salaries that we earn. So we feel like we're in this race to collect these things that will then make us more valuable as if we don't possess the value within us. And I think it was like, I, I didn't realize that I had the potential to be the rich, right old man that I was told I should marry. You know, I, I could be my own breadwinner. And I didn't realize that at the time. I thought I had to find the breadwinner. And because I prioritized that in my, relation, in my search for a relationship, I think I deprioritized some fundamental needs in a partnership, like someone who really sees you, someone who, who uplifts you. And, and versus I kind of felt like I found myself in this situation where I was being groomed almost to be a trophy wife. And I had to like fit into this certain box. And I found myself conforming, you know, in small ways, straightening my hair, you know, uh, you know, not wearing red lipstick, wearing like clear lip gloss and, you know, wearing flat round toe flats because that's what he liked and trying to learn how to cook. And like, these things aren't inherently wrong, like bad things. It's just that the motivation came from a place of wanting to fit someone else's ideals of what a wife, what a good wife looks like and how they move. Um, versus just being true to me and and being in tune with whether or not we were actually good matches for each other. And so it led to a whole series of um, of painful... We'll, um, let, we'll let readers discover yeah, that for themselves. Yeah, we, it's no spoilers. Such, it's such an incredible thing to read and to be able to read it in your book and go, Elaine did it? <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> We're all in this together to recognize and be kind to our former kind of more insecure selves. Yes, totally. We have to forgive ourselves. We have to have compassion for all of the previous versions of us that have made us who we are today. And I definitely felt that as I was writing this book, it was sort of cathartic over time. You know, even as a kid, like I would, we talked about how biraciality makes you this like chameleon. You can fit in and into any world. I have brown skin and curly hair. Well, I could be anything other than white, you know? So so I would straighten my hair and suddenly look like I was, you know, anyway, my hair kind of became part of this like chameleon aspect of my identity that I could manipulate to fit into different environments. And, and then through my relationships, I found myself, you know, like after this breakup, I I was trying to course correct this from this behavior of like adapting to the guy that I'm with and trying to like blend into his world and fit in with whatever his ideal of beauty is and whatever, however he envisioned his wife or whatever. So I was like rebelling against all of that. And so I cut all my hair off before that I dyed it every color under the sun. And I had never, my hair was so precious to me. And I've always been the girl with long, big curly hair. That's part of my identity, part of how people recognize me. Um, definitely an extension of my beauty, um, you know? And so I, I started just like fucking with it. I don't know if I can say that on your show, but like really messing with my hair. And so I dyed it green. I dyed it blonde. I started not just getting haircuts, but I started cutting my hair myself, like taking scissors to it and cutting it. And then eventually I just cut the whole thing off. And I, you know, had told myself, I was like, I'm so much more than my hair. I am not my hair, that whole Indy song. And yet 
try cutting your hair off and looking at yourself in the mirror. I mean, there is nothing more confront like that was that it's hard to confront yourself without your hair. And like, it really, that's the ultimate challenge of, oh yeah, you really strong all by yourself. You really think you're beautiful all with all on your own. It's all, it's what it's on, it's what's on the inside that counts. Okay. This is the true test of that. And I remember just like thinking I was so much stronger than I really was. And once I did, I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh my God, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. And I went to the bathroom and I cried like a baby and I called my ex-boyfriend and he, thank God, this was a different boyfriend that I actually didn't really write about in the book very much, but um, he was this older man that had been with me through this rebellious stage of me, like cutting my hair off and all this stuff. And I, I was really becoming a boss in my work life and also in my, you know, in my real life in all aspects. So while I was with him, I bought my first boss lady bag which again is an extension of what's happening inside of me. Like it's not just about, it's a, yes, it was a fancy Tom Ford bag. It was ridiculously expensive. It was $3,000, but I bought it when I got my job at Teen Vogue. And it sort of felt like something that I, it was important that I bought it for myself. No man is going to buy me my boss lady bag. This, it, this is something that is going to symbolize this new chapter of my womanhood. And it's going to be a reminder, a constant reminder on my arm every single day. It's going to come with me into every room that I enter. And it's going to just remind me to own this authority that I have in every aspect of my life. And so he was a part of helping me become a boss and seeing me evolve into a boss and he was also, a, you know, a quote unquote boss in his executive, you know, and as he was an executive in his own field and, but we had broken up, I cut off my hair and I called him in the bathroom crying. He goes, and he just coached me for, he was like, he was like, I'm sorry, is this the Elaine Welteroth that I know the one that has a boss lady bag? He's like, no, no, this can't be Elaine. Cause Elaine, I know is a boss. She wouldn't be crying in the bathroom after getting a haircut. No, no, no. The Elaine Welteroth I know knows that her hair doesn't define her beauty. She knows that she's beautiful no matter what her hair looks like. So this can't be, no, I'm sorry. I don't think that you have the right number. This can't be the Elaine I know. And then, I, he, and then I'm like, no, it, he's, he, I'm like, it is Elaine. And he's like, did you lose your boss lady bag? I don't think you should be walking around. I, I don't think you're ready for that boss lady bag. I think you should return that boss lady bag. You know, like he was just playing with me. I was like, he was like, he was like, are you still a boss? I'm sorry. I think maybe things have changed since we broke up. I was like, no, I'm still a boss. And he's like, you don't sound like a boss. And I'm like, I'm still a boss. <laughs> you know, like we had this whole counseling session. It was so important for me to be rem reminded of like my, of my strength in a moment where I felt really, really you know, unbossy, unbossy. And, um, and I think that's the beauty of what relationships can do at their best. They can be a mirror that reminds you of who you are at your best, even when you're at your worst. Um, and though that relationship didn't work out, it did, it did, uh, it helped me evolve. And like, it showed me what, how additive relationships can actually be. And, and anyway, help me get through that moment of chopping all my hair off, <laughs> which eventually it grew back and, and I would cut it off again. I would cut off again and I would recommend that every woman, any woman at one point in your life, cut, cut off all your hair, just cut it off because it forces growth and it forces you to confront yourself in a way that almost nothing else will. I know that sounds so, so superficial um, and maybe silly to some people, but I don't know. It was a very real, uh, it was a very, it was very real for me when I did it. And I think a lot came out of it. I mean, that's a great segue into understanding all of this and then going into Teen Vogue and being someone who gets to shape ideals of beauty and you get to shift it and push it. Mm -hmm. Reflecting back on that time, you did so much there. How do you think you were able to make so much change so fast? And do you feel that it, it was not enough? Oh man, I think part of why, why I wrote this book is to answer that question of how it happened because it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't just me. And, and even it, it wasn't just the me <laughs> the 2.0 version of me that walked into that job, it took all of those experiences in 1.0 Elaine, you know, in my 1.0 version of myself to understand the opportunity that was before me 
it takes being the three-year-old in a preschool class where you feel so othered because you're not seeing yourself in magazines. It takes being, you know, knowing what it is to not feel pretty because you're not fitting into this beauty ideal that has been reinforced, this Eurocentric beauty ideal, by the way, that has been reinforced in every way since the beginning of time. And it takes coming up through ebony and really having the opportunity to learn how to celebrate black beauty and the outside perspective and then having the opportunity to then take that into a place like Condé Nast at a time when the world's changing, the world was changing so much. And really there was an opening that was created for someone like me with these, with this unique set of experiences and identity, this identity that had not really been granted access in this particular, you know, position of power before to really take it and do something different, do something more meaningful, open doors for folks who might not have been granted entry otherwise, telling stories that might not have been told otherwise. Like it really positioned me to step into that job with a sense of purpose and mission that I wouldn't have had I not had those experiences. So it helps you look back and realize everything happens for a reason, truly. I mean, it's not just a cliche. Those experiences prepared me for this really in in such a unique way. So I felt charged when I got that mission, when I got that job to do what no one else could do from that post before and to do what unique, what I could uniquely do, which started with telling, it might sound trivial, but as a beauty director, as the first black beauty director in Kanye Nast history, just being able to tell my own natural hair journey in the pages of Teen Vogue was a bit of a radical act in 2012, you know, pre-woke America when we really did not talk about racial identity and through the context of, you know, beauty. And we didn't, we weren't having as many conversations about diversity and inclusion. And so it, it all felt really new. It felt new to see yourself as a person of color, a person with curly hair, to see someone like me writing a story like that in a magazine like Teen Vogue felt in some ways revolutionary and important. And so it, beauty became a powerful tool for subtle everyday forms of activism, like just showing up in those offices and being myself and wearing my big curly hair and pitching stories about black beauty is, you know, it was something that took courage. And so, you know, how, how did I, I mean, it took time. It, it, it's not something that ever happened overnight. I think the changes that happened at Teen Vogue ultimately in terms of becoming a political platform or a political vehicle. I think people learned about it like as if it happened overnight, like this overnight phenomenon. And it certainly wasn't. I was at Teen Vogue for, I think I was there for five or six years in total, which is still relatively a short amount of time. But I think it happened at this really wild turning point where again, we were having conversations in fashion that we were not having before and in media around diversity and inclusion. We were at the tail end of Obama's second um, administration. So, you know, we'd had a black president. It seemed like there was some amount of progress that we had made in these areas and we were feeling kind of good about ourselves. And, you know, and then the, and then also the rise of social media and, and the, you know, the pl- proliferation of all of these outside voices who now were kind of their own media entities. Whereas before there was, there were, you know, there's a small number of gatekeepers who got to de- determine what the one way message was going to be in media. And then it suddenly became a two way dialogue. And then there were all, and then there became all of these other entities, these individuals who didn't need to get blessed by these gatekeepers to be validated. Like they had their own platforms on social media and then we could tap into their conversations and see what was really actually resonating with our audiences. Like there was just a whole new way of working as an editor. Um, and all of this happened during the time I, I, right around the time that I started at Teen Vogue. And then of course, in 2016, President Trump was elected. And by then I was already doing work at Teen Vogue to push the boundaries around 
how beauty could be a platform for celebrating diversity and inclusion. It could be a vessel to have deeper conversations about cultural appropriation and, you know, other, you know, social conscious, elevating social consciousness from our, from our pages. It, that could happen through beauty. That was already happening. And then, you know, Philip Picardi is, was our digital director who worked with me as, you know, as my, um, he was my assistant in the beauty department. So we kind of, we were very much aligned in terms of our vision and the mission for Teen Vogue. And so by the time the election happened, we were already moving in this direction that was much more, I don't want to say liberal, but in, in, you know, in the political sense, but just speaking to issues that were beyond fashion and beauty and creating this amazing, inclusive intersection where all aspects of our readers' identities could be celebrated. You know, I think we live in this world where there are false binaries that are put upon us where we make that make us feel as though we could be either smart or pretty. We could we're black or we're white. We could talk about fashion or politics. You're young or you're old. And that dictates what kinds of news you read. And it's just like we wanted to break all of that down and and just say, here is a place you could be all of those things and we could have all of these conversations and it does not matter where you come from, what, you know, like it, it, how much money you make, if your family has money, like we just kind of threw out all the formulas and it was such a cool time to be a magazine editor, especially at a place like Teen Vogue. Cause no one was really going to tell us no, because they weren't really paying attention because no one was expecting Teen Vogue to be tackling these, these kinds of issues at the time. And then it kind of blew up. Your friend Rowan made this point. The thing about privilege is oftentimes you don't even have to think about inequality when you don't have to face it. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene um, that you recall in the book about having to go into the Teen Vogue offices and explain why all lives matter was a dangerous idea. And I just had to imagine, like, why on earth should you have to do that? Like, it's not your job to have to teach people why the Black Lives Matter perspective is important. But I felt like you were gracious enough to do it. What was that like? I think that was one of so many everyday experiences that kind of put Black people and me in particular in in those positions where you have to decide, you do this sort of the math in your mind around the cost of engaging or not engaging in these difficult conversations. And I think being biracial actually, and just having that education of being a bridge between so many different worlds and so many different ways throughout my life, I think it equipped me with a certain sensitivity chip that like made me, and also just a desire I think it's the, it's the, it really, it's, it's the desire to help bridge this divide in understanding and like really want to bring someone over to help see a different perspective. I don't always want to do that. It, there is a lot of emotional labor that goes into it, but I think in that moment I felt important and critical and I felt like as one of the sole voices, black voices in a white space and an otherwise white space, I felt like it was critical that I did my part to try to share a perspective that maybe some of the people in the office had not ever considered simply because of a lack of exposure to the black experience. And I think sometimes it takes storytelling, it takes proximity to black people to really help understand what some of these naughty issues, naughty, not naughty, but naughty issues really mean. Like it takes someone, I mean, it's, it's not ever any black person's responsibility to enlighten white people about racism and, and what it means to be black America in America. Like it's not, it is not our job. That being said, if you find yourself in a room where you can use your voice to speak for your community, to bring in the perspective of your community, to help enlighten that group of people. And if you feel safe enough to do that, and if you feel inspired to do that, if you feel like you have the energy to do it and the desire, it can be really powerful and transformative. 
um, that particular moment was actually really hard for me because I was really triggered around that time. That was around the death of Philando Castile, which really rocked me to my core. And Philando Castile, for those who don't aren't familiar with that case, is the, the black man who was um, pulled over by a police officer and shot in his own car. He was un- he was an unarmed black man who was just pulled over for a routine traffic stop and ended up being killed in front of his fiance and his daughter, young daughter, who I think was about three or four years old and just brutally murdered. And it was all caught on Facebook live. And, and I remember laying in my bed, watching this man get murdered by the police on Facebook live in front of his baby girl. And he didn't, he, for no reason, he did nothing to deserve that. And then months later, I mean, I mean that, and that was the time frame when I came in and, and this was, a, this was after a series of similar cases that had all result would, had all resulted in ultimately the, 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 the white cop getting off scot-free without any consequence. And it just enrages, it should enrage any human being, any conscious human being who is paying attention should be enraged. But what I found is that because I could see myself, my fiance, my brother, my uncles in that man, because they are black and therefore because the risk is more present and and it's an everyday risk that a black man takes on when he steps outside and when he goes into his car and drives around you, that could have been anyone in my family. So I felt it on such a deeper level than I found my, my colleagues feeling it when I came into the office. So I was, I was in pain. And so, and I thought that as just human beings, I would be met with, everyone would be feeling this. And I felt like it was, it was like this bizarre experience where I was like, wow, no one seems to be as deeply affected about this as me. And so it was a hard one for me to ha- try to have this diplomatic, educational conversation in the office around such a, you know, ch- emotionally charged topic when I feel like rioting, you know, like I understood in that moment why people riot. And, and so it was really hard for, that was a really hard time for me. And a lot of it, I just sort of swallowed and I just did my best to make it to that conversation, but ultimately it was really isolating. And so I don't know, I, it's a, it's hard. It's not an easy thing to unpack and no, and a lot of these people, listen, I think it's important to acknowledge that some of the harder conversations that I've had about race or in the, and and some of the harder experiences I've had around racism or microaggressions have been with well-intentioned white people. These are not bad people. These are not people who see themselves as racist um, or even ignorant. So I think it's important that like, we have to figure out how to break down these walls between each other and try to figure out how we can bridge our experiences so we can have more empathy for each other. And ultimately, even though it was a hard moment for me, I felt grateful to be in that room to do my part to help connect the dots on this really important issue um, because I might be the only black person that they know well enough to be able to even ask that question and to feel safe enough to ask that question. And I do think it's important to create spaces where people can feel safe enough to ask what might be a hard question or a, or a what they might feel like is a silly or dumb question. And, and really beyond this particular issue, like at Teen Vogue, the most transformative work we did came from having courageous conversations around the office with each other um, or around a room full of people who all bring a different perspective to something. And our cultural appropriation story is a good example of that. I think it's, it's, it's a, you have to kind of do the math like as, a, as a person of color to figure out if this is something you can take on, if, you're, if you can handle it mentally and emotionally. And if you can... Sometimes it is, it leads to transformative um, moments and and lessons for everyone involved. It's never easy. There's no one right way to do it. I feel like the book is a bridge for everyone in that way. We will see ourselves on the yeah, page. Yeah, we see yeah. ourselves on the page, and obviously, so many different types of people will will identify with you. I hope so. Um, I think that. The way, the way that I approach, I think storytelling has the power to change hearts and minds. Only people can change policies. We need more storytelling that brings people together and that changes our hearts and minds around some of these harder 
issues to tackle. And the way I approached it in the book is to just unpack these heavy topics through very simple everyday stories. You know, when I tell stories about like the microaggressions in the office, they're subtle, but they're clear enough so that anyone can identify with these stories and maybe even see themselves in it. And I feel like it's, that's important because if you don't see yourself as part of the problem, it's hard to see yourself as part of the solution. And so it's, I think oftentimes when we're having these conversations in more tense settings, it's harder for us to want to come to the table. It can be really intimidating, especially if you don't know the right jargon. You don't want to ask the wrong question. You don't want to be the silly person who said that thing. You don't want to start a fight. But I think that hopefully the simple everyday stories that I tell in this book will help illuminate how we all can be a part of pushing the world forward from wherever we are. And, and I just hope that people can see themselves in these stories and apply them in their own lives. So I'm, I'm grateful to hear that that was your experience when you read some of those pages. And we have to say to everyone, I mean, there is so much in this book we didn't get to. And that's what the beauty of these conversations is that we just we, I mean, we went to great places, but there are so many more places that you will discover in the book. So everyone go out and buy it and support it. Elaine, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Elaine as much as I did It's pretty incredible. This woman seems to have the perfect life, the one that we all look at on Instagram and wish we had. And in the book and as in the conversation, she really drops that veil. And that's why I think it's such an important... um, She reveals the kind of heartaches, the bad men she stayed with for way too long, and also some of the professional hurdles that have gotten her where she is today. So I hope you enjoy it and can't wait to hear what you think. Speaking with Elaine and reading her book reminded me of my younger self. Pretty much the mistakes I've made, like staying in those bad relationships for too long, but mostly of the passion and drive I had to try and change the world. She reminded me to tap into those big dreams and to try and find those instincts again. Please let me know what touched you most about this episode at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.